Through the lens of loving local and seeing global, we obsessively search for people whose stories need to be told and how OKC played a supporting role. Hosted by Katherine Bexton and Emmy Cobes, welcome to Action City. Emmy, hi. This is a new media for us. Medium, media. All of it's new. All of it's new. <laughs> and we don't know a how little to bit feel about it. Yeah. I feel like we want to bridge our Instagram community and our podcast community. And the way we think we're doing that is by putting our pit and peak on Instagram. So um, we'll see. We'll so see whether we'll that works. Yeah. We're just, we're just still, still in beta. Which we did the- it last week and the people watched. I mean, I don't know if they watched for like three seconds and turned it off because it was so painful or if they actually watched it. I don't know. Please I got comment. some notes. You did? Yes. Well, thank you. And I was at the nail salon yesterday and I saw someone and she's like, oh, I was just listening to you in my car. Oh, isn't that so sweet? Actually, like we do really appreciate the positive feedback was, because mean, we so do not know what we're doing. No, we're figuring it out. We're figuring it we're out. We're going to know what we're doing one day. I don't think so. What? Yes, we're smart. We can do it. <laughs> Okay. One day we're going to be like Hoda and Jenna. Who's Hoda and who's uh, Hoda Jenna? and Jenna? I no no no. On who, the today? No, who oh, is who's Hoda? Hoda and who's Jenna? Oh, God. I know cuz you know I mean, we, we both want to be brown hair and blonde hair. Then I'm then Hoda, you're Hoda and, and I'm Jenna. Jenna. Okay, I like that cuz I, don't I, know, I like be, them both. I think they're as, both sort of fun and interesting. I'd be happy to be either one. That's why you're Jenna and I'm Hoda cuz I want to be Hoda. <laughs> you know what I love about Hoda? She's always upbeat. I mean, yes. I don't know behind the scenes, yes. but it seems to me she's upbeat like well, 24 that, hours a day. That makes you more of a Hona because I always have like all <laughs> these pits with the pit and you're like, I don't really have a pit. And then I mean, it's like, yeah, I think I just blocked mine out. I had, I've, I've had a lot of pits the past 48 hours. Me too. Uh, well, you're, you, yeah, you have had a pit. Well, what are your pits? You mean to start with a pit? Yeah. It feels very unnatural, but well, I will do it. I'll start. Uh, it's just I had to get two children out of town this week and it's hard to manage these I've said it before it's hard to manage the children in the summer when you have a full-time job Oh, and now I'm and, and, and a part-time job. I was going to say, how many jobs do you have? Well, two official jobs. Two official. Two official jobs. Can we, I think we can call Action City an official job. Like we've taken in some revenue. I mean, that's exciting. Yeah. We've had real sponsors. Yes. And we will continue to get more real sponsors if you want to sponsor. If you want to sponsor. It's a direct message. <laughs> but. Shameless plug. <laughs> yeah, shameless plug. But I really, it was just a lot. Neely went to field hockey camp on Monday morning. Gracie went to Greece this morning. I mean, having your child travel internationally with another family, it just, and, and our friends, the cranes, they did all the work. I mean, all I did was pack her and, you know, have Jim write a letter saying it was okay. They took her, but it was, I'm exhausted. I I really don't even know how else to say it. And I'm like, I can't wash one more dish. I can't do one more load of laundry. And I really have done, not even done my job this week because- We've just been recording and Mm -hmm. we're having a trunk show tomorrow. (laughs) I just, I'm exhausted. I can't seem to get it all done. And I can't seem to get it all done without being resentful of the fact that I'm really doing most of it. And I've got to figure out how to get over that. Like I've got to stop being resentful of all of, of the fact that I'm doing two jobs and dealing with the children 95% of the time. I feel like you and I are similar though in that, right? It's like, we want to be the one to pack the suitcase. Yes. We want to be the one I don't want to Jim ha- doing that. Are you no. kidding? They would. Who knows what they did? But with? also you and I are the same. And like, I never, 
I, you know, even though over the p- pandemic, I technically wasn't working, I still like owned a business and yes. like, you know, I think you're in the same boat as me. It's like, we want to do it all, but yes. then we realize that we can't and it's just, yeah. And it's a sad realization too. It is such a sad realization. And I, I have this sort of like not new business idea by any means, but I have this sort of thought to grow Greta. And I sort of ran that past the therapist the other day of like, okay, and here's what I'm thinking. And I'm going to da, 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 da. And she's looks at me like I'm completely insane. I mean, I don't know why, because it just means like another 10 years of revenue for her. But I mean, <laughs> she looks at me, she's like, there, there's no, that's a horrible idea. There's no way you can do that. You cannot take on one more thing, but it doesn't. So feeling resentful and miserable doesn't stop me from wanting to like tackle whatever the next thing is. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with me? No, I have it too. I literally, and that's, I mean, you just said you're starting another business. Well, and that, the exact, (laughs) what is wrong with us? I think, I think it's because we just are, we're hungry, right? It's like, you know, we want it. We have lots of areas in our life we want to be fulfilled in. And I think you and I are in the same where it's like, you know, we come from these like more corporate backgrounds and our friends are more corporate and they're, you know, and, or they have full-time jobs where yes. they're at a desk from eight to six and you and I don't. And We're so maybe that. there's some sort of like compensation for that. Yes. But we, it's like, we have the better bargain, right? Oh, for sure. I don't know how you have a full-time job where you go to work at eight and come home at six and have two kids. And I don't know. I mean, I mean obviously I, people I do it and I'm f- amazed. Well, and that's what I was telling somebody the other day. I was like, I'm in the minority for not having that out of all my mom friends. So they all really go yeah, to a I think job my, where there's a uh, boss and I would a desk. Say, and a, yeah. My, well, some of them are in real estate. So that's not a boss and a that's, desk. But that's but a 24 hour of, day. People are calling oh, you yeah, like on Sunday night um, at nine o'clock. But yeah, like I, a lot of my friends, they like go to an office and, you know, we talk about like, going into labor, breastfeeding. Or you have to go to the doctor or your child is homesick. Well, that's so one of my friends who has, I mean, and her company is very strict about when she comes, when she goes, she had to take a half day of vacation because her son was sick. And it like, or maybe she had to take a sick day. Either way, she had to like, still there's a limited number of days. It's not unlimited. Right. And it wasn't like her boss was like, don't worry about it. Like she, it had to be documented and dealt with properly. And it's like, oh my gosh, if I, I couldn't imagine being tied. I I would get fired from that job (laughs) for sure. (laughs) I would get fired. Well, so my, so my pit, both I have now like um, almost 48 hours without any children, but you know, it's going to be, I'm going to just enjoy my 48 hours. So my peak though was last night we played Mahjong. Oh, I'm so jealous. It was so much fun. You're going to come. We're doing it again. Yeah. yeah I'm, I want to come it again in July. Okay. But it was, so we, we really didn't know what we were doing. There were six of us. Seventh person came sort of later, but. Wait, so, how do you play with six? Well, you don't. So we had four, the four people that really didn't know what they were doing. I don't know what them I'm doing. At the table. And okay. then Lee and I kind of coach them on how to Lee Murphy on, on how to play. Okay. But the problem was like two tables of bridge came in while we were there oh. and it was a very quiet bridge game of some, of some older people who were absolutely lovely. But when they first get there, we had to get up and chit chat and da, 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 da. And then they sat down and we were of course so loud and obnoxious. And yeah. cause I mean, Mahjong, you're talking, you have to talk to each other. Right, kind right. Of. So they were quietly, and I don't know, we might get booted out of the entire thing. <laughs> who knows? Maybe but just pick a different time. <laughs> but, but what was really amazing though, is so we had two different Mahjong sets set out and some of the people that came in to play bridge, they, they knew how to play Mahjong, but every single one of them said, Oh my God, those Mahjong sets are so beautiful. 
what like from how does it work line. yes yeah. from the we used them from the mahjong line and i had gotten my sliders in and i got my new cards but we didn't use the new cards because i had never played with them before so i was sort of there was just a lot of chit chat going on which was makes it difficult to try to remember how to play we need to we're, so i feel like we're gonna get good and it is it's a blast yeah I love it. And I think I want to try to have like a bigger Mahjong event mm-hmm. like the girls in Dallas are doing. Like they've done it for charity. You could do it for school. You could have like a Mahjong event for Mother's Day out. Right, like, right. I mean, we could do a Mahjong event at Greta. So Your it was fun. City. That was fun. That was yeah. my two hour break last night from packing and running errands and doing dishes and laundry. And it was a much needed two hour break. I was really grateful for it. That's so good. Here we are. I know. Well, what so, was yours? Oh God, I think I know what your pit well, is. My pit is like a two-parter, right? It's like my, so my daughter was homesick. Um, she's been Poor homesick Campbell. since for the past two days. And it was like her, you know, obviously seeing your child sick is awful. Um, but I think the real pit was kind of going back to your pit where it's like, I can't do it all. So, you know, my husband has a full-time job and that's, you know, great. And I support him in that. It's just sometimes, yeah, it's like I'm doing more of the legwork on some of the family stuff, which is kind of the bargain right now, which is fine. I just feel like, you know, I literally ran all these errands with her yesterday. I even got an like a workout in, you know, like I was doing everything I could. I was doing laundry. I was doing, you know, we, I took her to the doctor. We went to Walgreens. You we, never sat down. I'm um, pretty sure. She, we went to the, she took, I brought her to the grocery store because I have to go on Tuesdays or else we don't have food. And then Jeff was like, I'm running late. I'm not going to be home earlier. And so I realized during all of this, like I make dinner dinner is like warm again when he gets home or, you know, he's finishing mm-hmm. it up. And by the way, Campbell likes to be held now while I make dinner. Oh, so I'm that's convenient. Literally that's a one-armed dinner making. One, yes. How can you cut anything? You need to get the chicken pre-cut. I put her down and she screams oh. and I cut and then I pick her up. I mean, she was sick too. So it was like, she, yeah. but she won't pay like Huffman. I can distract with the television or something. She will not. So then I realized, I look at the clock, it's 6.30. I had a board meeting at 6 that I just oh, completely I've been there. forgot about. I've been there, Emmy. And I was just I'm like, so and it sorry. was an important one that I wanted to be a part of. And I literally was like throwing the kids at Jeff and was like, I've got to get on this call. And like, right as I logged on to Zoom, it was over. Like, oh. as I was logging on, people were like, bye, bye. bye. And oh, like, I've, I've done that. Uh, and it just was that realization, like, wow, I had this crazy successful day taking care of my kids going to the grocery store doing all this stuff and then it's like you just and then all that success sort of gets washed away because then all you can think about is how you missed that board meeting totally even though you had done such a great job on the rest of your life I felt that way but then you're like wait I yeah I know isn't that the worst though it's like and it was something that I was excited to hear about and I had been a part of the stuff behind the scenes for this call and so I really wanted to speak to some of this stuff and then it was just like oh Oh, and then you send an email later. I'm so sorry. I completely no, forgot. No, I was texting. I was like, is it over? Is it, is over? it over? And everybody's like, yeah, it's over. And I was just like, are you kidding? It was like, I don't know. I'm just so- I stress out about that for like another week. I did yeah. that like two weeks ago with an infant crisis board meeting and it was in the store and somebody came in and I kept saying, okay, at noon, I got to get on. I got to, and then- it was like all of a sudden it was twelve thirty, yeah. and I'd forgotten the whole thing. Yeah, that's- How yeah. at 1150 can I be thinking about it? And, and then, then it goes out of my brain in the next 10 minutes. And then at 1230, I think about it again. Like, how does that 
I know now that's exactly what happened to me because I was making dinner. I was like, wait, Jeff's not going to be home till 540. Okay. Then I have 20 minutes to eat before my meeting. So I had that thought of like, it was happening and then it just, and then it wasn't happening. So I guess what was your peak? I think my peak was having Campbell home, right? Even though she was sick, it just, I just love, she's at such a cute age. It's, It's a hard age because she's not talking and communicating fully, but it's a fun age because her she's so smart and she's so funny. And I can see it. I can see that she is very sassy. Like maybe most little girls are like, oh, she's so sassy, but she's almost like sarcastic. And I can see it the way she like, oh, I can't wait till she's 15. I know, Amy. I know it's going to be hard, <laughs> but I love that because sometimes like, I don't know, and I, I don't want to like compare myself to her, but you know, as a mom, you kind of wonder what personality traits have been passed yes. down and all whatever. I'm like, I don't know where this kid came from. I mean, Jeff's pretty shy. I feel like I'm slightly vanilla and I'm like, this kid is what? hysterical. Vanilla? No, not well, at all. You know what I mean? It's like, she's definitely going to be more. She's going to have a sense of humor and a huge sense yes. of humor. Cause she like makes little jokes all the time. And I'm like, how are you making jokes at 18 months old? But it's funny. Like, I don't know. I'm just really excited to see the person she becomes. I mean, I did tell you, I did have a little PTSD with quarantine, having her Uh, home by myself. I think we're going to feel that for a while. um, I told you I went on a walk with this like stroller I haven't used since really quarantine. And it just kind of brought back all the memories of like shoving the stuff in the stroller and like, you know, her falling asleep on this walk at this one time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this feels like a year ago. I can't go back there. Please don't make us go back there. Um, But I mean, it was great having her home and she's still home today. So I'm really thankful. Jeff, I was like, Jeff recording is the one thing I do a week where I like have to do it. I know. So, so he did is, he stay home with her today? Well, he took her to the doctor and then now they're home, but you know, Oh I'll gosh, be soon, we better so. chop chop. No, it's okay. I know. Well, the next time I see, I for, really did forget that my peak it was your- also is I'm going on a trip. I'm going on a little trip. Yeah. I'm going to market in LA, which I haven't been in real life market, obviously since February of 2020. So I'm going to market. I'm taking Neely with me. Yeah, I'm picking her up in Austin. We're going to LA, so I'll report back. I think we're going to some new restaurants I haven't been to, and maybe we'll go to Malibu. Where I've, I really haven't spent any time in Malibu, so we might go to the beach. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, and to everybody on our Instagram, we thank you for watching today. Um, we are going to sign off because we don't want to tell you our guests for Thursday, but it's really good. I think that you guys will love it. It's about an exciting upcoming event in Oklahoma yes. City. Yes. So I'll have be happening next week or the week after next the week. 26th of June. Right. Okay. 26th so. of June. So tune back in on Thursday and yes. you'll get to hear from our guest. Yes. Okay. And to our podcast listeners, Bryn Shockmill is a curator at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art. Originally from upstate New York, Bryn earned her BA from Skidmore College and her MA from the Court Laud Institute of Art in London and her PhD in Italian Renaissance art from the history from Boston University. After graduating in 2019, Bryn moved to OKC to begin her fellowship in provenance research at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art. After her fellowship, she began her new position as curator in November 2020 and is currently working on the museum's major summer exhibition, The Painters of Pompeii, Roman Frescoes from the National Archaeology Museum in Naples. Prior to moving to OKC, Bryn worked for a number of different museums in the Northeast, including the Clark Art Institute and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Please welcome Bryn to Action City. Hi, this is Catherine, one of the hosts of Action City. I have two loves, fashion and food. 
So far, I've only figured out how to make one of them a career. Owning Greta Sloan, Oklahoma City's premier fashion destination, has been the highlight of my 20 plus years in the industry. It's a place where people and creativity come together. My team and I do the hard work of curating designers from all over the world and then narrowing down the best of their creations to make the shopping experience one of discovery and fun. We want our clients to eye their treasures from Greta Sloan as the favorite pieces in their closets and the ones that bring them the most joy to wear. We'll see you at the shop in Nichols Hills Plaza off 63rd and Western, or check us out on Instagram at Greta Sloan, G-R-E-T-T-A-S-L-O-A-N-E. Bryn, Emmy, and I are so thrilled to have you on Action City today. And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming. I know that Emmy's been, we were, we were talking about you guys sort of a few weeks ago and she's had you on her in her sights. And so I'm so excited that we got this all worked out. Yeah, I'm excited. So you're from upstate New York. Yes. I grew up near Albany, New York. And it was very cold and dark. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was very cold and dark. <laughs> Wait, Albany is the capital, capital of New York, yeah. isn't it though, right? Okay. Yeah. So it, I mean it's certainly colder and darker than it is here, but it wasn't as bad as like Buffalo or other parts it of the state. It dark at 430 yeah, in the winter. Yes. So growing up, uh, what, oh, so like what was high school like for you? What were your interests? Has art always been an interest? Definitely. So I grew up very small town. My high school graduating class was like 76 people. So like okay. a very small rural community. And I was interested in art, um, like art history and working in a museum from like I can like actually date it very specifically. Like I took an art class my freshman year of high school that was also like an art history class. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a curator. And so I talked to my art teacher and I'm like, could we form a curators club at the high school? And I could like <laughs> curate some things. And she's like, sure. Wait, and that's so awesome. awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> I've never heard of a curators club. It that's was probably first. one of the only ones. So I started curators club and I would like do all the displays of student artwork, like in the, you know, the oh, lobby so and things awesome. like that. And in the library. First year so. of high school, if you asked me what a curator was, I would I would have had no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Wait, is the curator club still going? I mean, I did know. you pass the torch to your prodigy? Some younger, like, yeah. Like, I mean, the club your, your... was mostly me and my friends that I could rope in to help me. But I, I bet you there's still somebody doing it. Wait, hopefully. that's so fun. So you would display all your friends art. You would, so it was in conjunction with like the art program and that's so cool. Yeah. And just like rotating things in like the front lobby and in the library. And they do like during the big strawberry festival in the spring, we'd have displays of all the students artwork and things like that. That So this is like from inception. Like you yeah, just, you yeah. knew you wanted to do this and yeah. you probably got an earlier start than most people probably <laughs> since we've never heard of a curator's club. So did you choose the college you went to based on the, this kind of passion? So a little bit. Um, so I knew I wanted to go to like a small liberal arts school and wanted to study art history, but also I had a lot of other interests and I went to Skidmore college, which is in Saratoga Springs in New York. And I went to their like accepted students day in the spring where they have all the different majors have like a booth in the gym and you can go around and talk to people. And I went and talked to the professor in the classics department because I was really interested in classical mythology. And she's like, Oh, I'm doing this course in the fall that I bet you would like. It's called den of antiquities. And it's on, looted artworks and provenance research in museums. And I'm like, oh my God, this is right up my alley. I'm sold. And now that professor, Leslie Meacham, who I've 
kept in touch with. She's actually going to be giving a talk at the museum in conjunction with Pompeii. So it's been sort of nice oh full circle. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Have to go. Yeah. We get a Wait, that's so cool. Okay. So you basically walk in the gym and you're like, I found my people. Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. So what was your experience like at Skidmore? I loved Skidmore. And like my closest friends to this day are my Skidmore friends. We you know, have stayed in touch. We see each other all the time. Went back to my reunion a few years ago. It was just, it was like everything that I wanted out of a college experience. Like I took so many different classes, like art history, but also like anthropology classes and psychology classes and various languages. And I studied abroad in Paris, which was an amazing experience. And so it was just like a sort of perfect college experience. Skidmore was a great place for me. How far was it from home? It was only like an hour from home. And I was initially not even going to apply to Skidmore because I'm like, that's too close to home. Like, I want to go farther away. And my mom's like, I really think this would be a good fit for you. You like should at least apply. And she was, of course, right. Because it was oh, that makes me fit. so mad. When my mom was right. <laughs> that's, it. that's what happened to me with my college experience. Yeah. too. I didn't want to go to TCU because I thought it was too close. And then my parents were like, I think you'd like this. And then I went. So yeah, it's funny how now you have to admit. I know. I know Had your, did your parents grow up in New York? I mean, we're, um, my mom grew up near Syracuse, very small okay. town. Her lived there all her life. My dad was an army brat and he grew up all over the country. Um, so he was born in Texas and then lived in California, Georgia, Massachusetts, all over the place. But his family settled in my mom's town when he was in high school. And so that's how they met. Oh, yeah, that's I mean, so sweet. Where, did they take you? Okay. My mom was always taking us to museums growing up. I mean, we couldn't go to any sporting event outside of town. We couldn't go <laughs> anywhere without finding a museum. I yeah. mean, to the point where I was like sort of traumatized and didn't go to a museum for a long time. But were your parents like that? I mean, oh, they, definitely. Were they taking you to like the rock museum, whatever museum yeah. they could find in that town? And the nice thing about like, so where I grew up, Skodak Landing is like two and a half hours north of New York City and like two and a half hours to Boston. So we could easily do like day trips to oh. both of those places. And we'd go to DC every uh, spring during spring break and like go to all the Smithsonian's. And so, yeah, lots of museums growing up in my life. <laughs> wow. And you didn't hate it. And you didn't hate no. it like I did. So we <laughs> no, I loved ask, it. Now I need to ask your parents it. what they did. I know. What was it that they, I think maybe you just came out a certain way. Well, so I dropped my daughter off this morning at the airport to go to Greece for two weeks. And I mean, you say the word museum and she has a complete meltdown. And I had to give her like a pep talk. She's going with her best friend's family. I was like, you will be going to museums. Yeah. You'll be seeing a lot of artifacts please don't complain. Like, please, you're the guest. Like, is she going to be in Athens or they're going to be in Athens yeah. for, Oh, she's got to go to the Acropolis museum. Then. Yeah. Like, so I, I mean, so I was sort of, there. got the itinerary this morning. It looked really amazing, oh, good. but I'm hoping that the next generation will end up really loving museums, even though they don't now. We'll see. I, I think it does make a difference if like you're exposed to it at a young age, because then it just becomes like sort of natural and like, it's like vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like if you put vegetables on the plate, eventually they're going to eat vegetables. If yeah. You take them to museums. Cause now I really do love, I love going to museums. I love looking at art. I can't remember any of it, but yeah, I'm terrible. That's, that's I took that's, art history. I'm awful. awful. Terrible. But so I'm like so it. excited you're here because you yes, know, we need because it's stuck with you, right. obviously. <laughs> yeah. So after, so you go to Paris. Was that some sort of? It was study abroad. But do you get to work in museums in Europe, or did you get to like have sort of a backstage pass to any of the? Well, so it was a, it was through Skidmore, and so there were like seven of us um, on the study abroad program. They. Skidmore does two programs, one program for people who can speak French and one who can't. And I, despite my best efforts, was in the don't speak French category. <laughs> and so there were seven of us and it was led by a Skidmore professor who was like a government professor. But that's the one they offered the year I was going. And I'm like, whatever, like I would go with like a 
chemistry professor if that's what it took me to get to Paris. Um, and it was actually really nice. It was a, as an art history major, I tend to, <laughs> tends to be mostly female. And this was like five cute guys and me and one other girl. So that was like a nice ratio. That's <laughs> nice. Gosh, I would have gone for that too. Yeah. And they gave us all student cards that listed us as being art history students, even though they were not, because that meant we got to go to all the museums for free. Oh, and so I was at the Louvre wow. like two or three times a week. And we did, we had a professor who was supposed to give us a tour of the Louvre in like October and she couldn't for every reason. And so my professor, he's like, Bryn, do you think you could lead the tour of the Louvre? And I'm like, yes, I definitely Hello. could. Yes. <laughs> so I put every together like this whole here. tour. And Wait, that's amazing. It was, it was wonderful. I love Paris so much. Did so, you, yeah. did, did you ever, did you ever, I don't even know. Never mind. We're going to cut that question. <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll have to edit that. So what did you do after college? Like where, what, what was your pathway to kind of being a curator? So after Skidmore, I went right to grad school. I went to the Courtauld Institute of Art, which is in London. Oh. And I did my master's over there. So that's a one year program. Um, and it, it was a great program and it actually worked out really nicely because I have a sister who's two years younger than me and she did her junior year abroad in London. And so we were there at the same time, oh, which initially she was like, I can't believe you're honing in on my study abroad experience. <laughs> but it actually worked out really well because we were able to go to museums together and we traveled all around Europe together and went to the theater and did things like that. And I'm sure your parents were happy that oh, yeah. you were there you had too. Each other. Yeah, yeah, that we had each other to do like, because yeah. we were both there for a full year. And so like we could do like Thanksgivings together and birthdays and all of that. Really... It's like a lot of hands-on work. And so we would go to galleries and we'd go to conservation studios and we did like a class field trip to Belgium. And it was just a really, a really nice program. Were it's, there people yeah. from all over the world in that yeah, program? Yeah, it's a very international. So mine, you were in sort of like focused groups. And so I was in a Northern Renaissance unit and my unit had some other people from the U.S., people from the U.K., people from Germany, some of the other girls who lived in the dorm that I was in, um, we're from Spain, some people from Korea, all over the place, really international. That's so fun. And so then what's the, you came back to the United States after that. What's the typical path? I mean, are you on the, have you done the typical path after you get your master's in Northern Renaissance? Yeah. <laughs> well, then I came back, I took a gap year and worked for a bit. And then I went and did my PhD at Boston University, um, where I switched focus slightly to the Italian Renaissance. Um, and so that was a five-year program and I got to spend some more time in Europe and then I came out here. So <laughs> quick, quick trip to Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your dissertation? So my dissertation was on a Northern Italian artist whose name is Andrea Mantegna. And I picked my dissertation topic. <laughs> so I studied the Italian Renaissance, but I'm really bad at Italian. And I was like, well, I, I can't go spend extended periods of time in Italy trying to do archival research because I won't be able to read anything. And so I picked these paintings that have been, they're called the Triumphs of Caesar. And the paintings have been in England since 1630. And I'm oh. like, well, this is perfect for Italian paintings. <laughs> but it's all written English. about in English. So right. I spent a lot of time in London and then did like shorter trips to Italy and various other places. Um, so my dissertation was on, yeah, these paintings by Mantegna that are really beautiful. And I was, I enjoyed working on them. So. That's incredible. So if you don't speak another language being an art history PhD. Is that hard? I mean, yes, most, oh my God. I mean, cause uh, I think that's another thing you sort of come out with, right? Like you are, yeah, you to, either can speak you language, can either speak yeah, language yeah. you can't, yeah. like there's nothing you can sort of do about it unless you really go live there for 10 well, years. Well, and it's frustrating. Cause like, I would like give anything to be bilingual. And like, I, you know, started taking French as soon as my school offered it all through high school, all through college, studied abroad in Paris. But it's just one of those things that just doesn't really stick in my brain very yeah. well. 
And so at Boston University, in order to get your PhD, you have to pass two language translation exams. Oh my and, gosh. In two different languages? In two different languages, English? yeah. So what did you do? And so I took the French one and then I failed it. And then I took the French <laughs> one again and then I failed it again. And then I had to take basically the remedial course and you have to take this language course in the evenings and it's all grad students in the humanities. And so like Who music are in the same boat you're in, yeah. right? So, and that starts back at the beginning. And so then it's like the alphabet and I'm like, okay, well, I, I know this much, but so then I passed the course. And then for Italian, I didn't even bother taking the test. I just went right to the remedial course and took the class <laughs> and managed to pass that. So it's definitely a hang up, but now like Google Translate's gotten very good. Right. So I just plug things into that and it comes out with a close well, and, enough translation. And it, yeah. here's the lesson, right? You have a PhD, <laughs> which I would never have, and you still fail two tests, yeah. right? So yeah, you don't have to be perfect in order to still be wonderful <laughs> and smart, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so, okay. How did you know you were moving to Oklahoma City? So my final year at Boston University, I was applying for jobs all over the country and in like all different types of positions. Like I knew I wanted to do museum work, but like getting sort of breaking into the museum world, becoming a curator. It's like very competitive. There aren't a ton of jobs, especially not in Renaissance. Um, so I was also applying to like teaching positions and research fellowships and all sorts of different things. Um, and so I applied for a fellowship at the Oklahoma city museum of art, which was doing, it was a one-year fellowship sponsored by the crest foundation doing provenance research, which is researching the ownership history of a work of art. Um, and so I interviewed for that position and I was offered that job and I was so excited. And so I moved out here in August 2019 and had that fellowship for a year. Had you ever been here before? I had been here once. My family and I, when we were growing up, we did a lot of cross-country road trips. And so on one of our road trips, we came through Oklahoma City I think this would have been in 2003. So I'd been here once, but not in quite a long time and didn't. Much different city. Much yeah, different Much city, different. Right. I didn't know very much about it, but like I was really looking for it. Like Boston's a lovely place, but I was ready to get out of Boston, go somewhere new. And so once I got the job and I was like researching Oklahoma City, like, first of all, I'm like, oh my God, the cost of living is so much so better great. than Boston. Oh God, like, like great. look at this amazing apartment that uh -huh. I can afford. Um, so that was really nice. And then when I got out here, like all the restaurants and the parks and everything, I'm like, this is, this is a good place for me. So when you came, you really were just here for a year the yeah, first time. Just for a the year. the fellowship lasts for one year. And do they, is this a fellowship they have all the time at the museum? Does it, is no. It, so this is, this fellowship, um, different I museums get it different gotcha. years. You don't, all, they will offer it to any museum that has not had this Providence work done. Proven yeah. Provenance? Provenance, yeah. Provenance work done. And so you were able, and once it's done, it's done. You don't need to necessarily. Yeah. Well, it is sort of an ongoing project. Um, but I was able, like for my fellowship, I was able to work on sort of Provenance full time. And now as a curator, that's kind of just a part of my so, job duties. Okay. I, I'm feeling like I don't understand. No, no. So I'm going to ask a question. So th does that mean that the current works that are in the museum of art that you didn't know who the original owner was, you were trying to figure it out? Exactly. Yeah. Oh. So like we have, you know, a huge collection of works of art and provenance research is really important because you want to make sure that there aren't sort of any red flags in an object's history. And there's sort of like two major categories that you're concerned about. One would be like antiquities or works of art from 
countries that were at one time occupied by colonial powers that maybe had been stolen. And so works of art from like Africa or from Greece and things like that. That's not really a concern at our museum because we don't have those types of art. So what, so if you were to uncover, like let's, I'm always about like, <laughs> this is how my yeah. mind works. But so if you were to uncover that a piece of art was um, in that category, like owned by a country in Africa, then would you like give it back? Well, then it gets very complicated and then like lawyers would get involved okay. and there'd be all sorts of processes. It's been in the news this oh, a lot oh, recently. Yeah. Especially with the, you know, the um, Nazis taking. Well, that's what my focus was more on, Mm -hmm. because like that's the other sort of major area of concern is you want to see, do you have any works in your collection for which you have like no data from like the 1930s to 1945? Because and that was in Europe, because you want to make sure that it wasn't um, a part of the Nazi art looting scheme. So I was focusing mostly on our paintings that were in Europe during that time and making sure we could have the provenance for that period. Unfortunately, everything came up clean and we didn't have any problems. Um, But certainly if I had found something, then I would have gone to my boss and said, okay, I found something that's potentially problematic. We need to delve deeper into this. Oh, wow. So like what has been happening with those pieces of art that were a part of that looting scheme? So um, if the next step would then be to try to figure out who the rightful owner is. So are there heirs that are still alive? Um, a lot of works, the heirs aren't alive anymore. It was you know, often stolen from Jewish collectors who were killed during the Holocaust. Oh. And so a lot of museums um, will hold on to the work until they can find the heir or try to return it to whoever that appropriate party might be. It's it's not as straightforward as you might wow. think because there's not always someone to give it back to. Right. That's so interesting. And you would think like, maybe that they would let the museum keep it. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they come to an arrangement with the family and they might say something on the label that'll say like, you know, on permanent loan from whomever. Oh, interesting. Wow. That's, I mean, so this, so in recent years, has this kind of fellowship become more important, I guess? I think so. And especially related to Nazi art that was looted by the Nazis, you might think like, it's been almost a hundred years. How right. is this still ongoing? But part of the problem was that, um, first of all, like obviously everything being digitized now, the internet, that makes it so much easier to do this kind of research. And the other thing is that a lot of the records were in former East Germany and the former USSR. And so it wasn't until sort of the nineties when things started to open up more that a lot of you these archives, access. yeah, that people could get access. So that's why I think the field has grown a lot in the last couple decades or so. That's so interesting. Okay, so that's that was half the work of the of researching the ownership. What's the other half? You kind of do you did you Yeah, so the other what I was saying was it's like kind of the colonial art, that's one half, and then the Nazi stuff. Oh, is the okay. Other half. I see yeah. what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, so those are kind of two big areas of focus of provenance research. Wow. So what, what's the best story? Call? I know. <laughs> like, I can't even. You have like a priceless piece of art that's your family's and I know. we have it. And, and we, we have it in our <laughs> yeah. museum. But in well, research, sure what, what, what was the most interesting story that you uncovered of ownership Ooh. of a piece? <sighs> you know, you want to be transparent. So when I was right. done with my research, all of like my big sort of summary of everything I found is now available on the website and anyone can look mm-hmm. at it and if it they was want displayed, to. right? You have oh, yeah, an exhibit. an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my favorite ones was I'm really interested in in genealogy. And so a lot of the information we find actually comes from the object itself. There'll be like notations and stuff on the back. And so we have this English portrait of Sarah Siddons, who was a stage actress in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And on the back, 
there's all these like notes that say like various people's names and dates and like hung above the fireplace and things like that. And I did all this genealogical research and I found that these were actually all one family. And it was a bunch of people that ended up having no kids. And so it got passed to like a nephew. And so the names changed and things like that. But it stayed in one family for well over a hundred years before it was finally sold at, I can't remember, Christie's or Sotheby's, something like that. And so that one was really fun. I enjoyed doing that. Oh, that's so How long do you spend researching one piece? I guess it, it depends on how many owners there are yeah. and how easy it is to find the information. But I mean... And like the hardest part is sort of getting the books that I need so that Metropolitan Library downtown, they have an interlibrary loan service and they were getting books for me. And then my fellowship came with a travel stipend. And so I could go to various other libraries like the Nelson Atkins has a great library. The Kimball Museum of Art has a great library, Crystal Bridges. But then, of course, once the pandemic hit about six oh, months into my fellowship, that made that made it all much, much more difficult because all the libraries closed. Could you call up the people that took care of the libraries and the museums and say, can you go look at this book for me? They, yeah. And they could sometimes, I would say, I knew exactly what page I needed and exactly what book and they could scan it for me. And so the librarians were really wonderful. And oh my gosh. Helpful. That's a librarian. Do we still call them librarians? They have a new, there's I don't a new know. name for a librarian now, I think because, Is there? yes, I think hmm. it's kind well, of evolved. I think she would know, right? I think it's evolved <laughs> into like, why does librarians it's not specifically bad... related to books now? I think there's just oh. more information that they're keeping oh, interesting. track of, and so I think it's a broader scoped name now. Oh, we're going to figure. I'll figure out what okay. that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll that fact check that. We'll <laughs> fact check. So yeah, six months and the pandemic happens, and yeah. so you're in your apartment in Oklahoma City. Did you think about going home? Or? I did actually go home for so like right when the pandemic started in mid March, and when the museum decided that we were going to be working re- remotely, my mom's like, "You should get on a plane and." Come come home because if this gets really bad, like it would be nicer for you to be home with people, you know? So I went home for about a month and then I was like, I'm getting really bored here. And like, <laughs> I want to be back in my apartment with all my stuff. And so then I decided to come back, but my mom was, was like, you can't fly. It's too dangerous, which she was probably right. And so I rented a car oh, and I drove by yourself by myself. <laughs> I've driven from Albany, New York to Oklahoma City before. It's a long drive. By yeah. yourself? I no, no, with my parents when I went to boarding school. I've we, done the drive yeah, now. Yeah, it was painful. Many times because oh. when I bet, went back home at Christmas, I drove again at Christmas time. So <laughs> how many hours? It's 23 hours. So obviously you have to stay over I don't know if I could make it all by myself. I'm impressed. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Podcast, Podcast. music, audiobooks, <laughs> like lots of various Thank goodness. Well, that's things so, to listen to. So now, so when did your new role in the museum start? So my new job started in November 2020. Um, so me and Catherine Shoddick, who's our other curator, we both started at the same time. Um, and so I've been in that new position for a little over six months now. Wow. Was it a position that they created? And we've always had curators at the museum, but did they create an additional curator position? Um, what was the, Not the really, just sort of the way things had shifted. Michael Anderson had been our head of curatorial, but then now he's our director mm-hmm. and other people had left. And so there just ended up being a couple of vacancies that they needed to fill because the curatorial department had sort of emptied. <laughs> and in a way, it was sort of the best of both worlds, right? You had a year to see whether or not yeah. you really loved Oklahoma City and you loved the museum and they had a year to see how you would fit with the group. I mean, it's it's yeah. really sort of Yeah, it worked perfect out perfectly. Storm. Yeah, it was nice that I sort of knew everybody already and was comfortable with the city and with the environment of the museum and all of that. Did you stay on from August to November? Or did you go home and sort of I went home, jobs other places? Um, I went home again for about a month in the fall and spent some time with my family and then, yeah, came back. 
And so you must like Oklahoma City. I love it. I love it here so much. And like everyone who's come to visit me so far has been like so surprised because I think people, I think it's like very much like a hidden gem of a city. People don't necessarily, you know, they think of like Austin or Memphis or these various other places that are now so hip and they don't really know about Oklahoma City. And every time people come here, they're like, oh my God, this place is so great. You should like buy a house and like. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, funny like, thing, I probably can afford it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not Boston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so what since you've started as a curator, kind of what has been happening at the museum and what have you done? Like what's been exciting, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I've got a bunch of projects that I'm working on, but my main focus right now is our big summer exhibition, which is the painters of Pompeii. And so I'm working on this with my boss, Rosie May, and it's, it opens very soon, June 26. And this is going to be our huge summer exhibition and it's frescoes. So paintings from the National Archaeological Museum in Naples that are all from Pompeii, Herculaneum and those towns around that area. So they're about 2000 years old. Wait, my mother-in-law gave a talk at the, uh, what is it? The, um, in Naples, the National Archaeological Museum. Yeah, so she's an archaeologist. No, really? Yes. That's oh so God. cool. I know. That's so funny. I like read that on your thing, but I didn't put it together till just now. But yeah, she digs in, um, in Jordan. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But That's she gave a, really cool. She gave a talk there and we almost went, we couldn't go. I think I was pregnant. I don't can't remember why my husband and I couldn't go, but my sister-in-law and my grand or his grandfather, they all went and yeah, she gave a talk there. Well, the Naples museum is fantastic. And it's Naples is a, not really on the tourist trail as much. You know, right. people that go to Italy, go to Rome, Florence, Venice. Like people don't usually get as far you south as Naples. To Capri from Naples. Yeah, that's, yeah that's exactly. What you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the museum there, they most of the artifacts from Pompeii and Herculaneum and all those areas are now at the Archaeological Museum in Naples. And so they have this fantastic collection of frescoes, but also mosaics and sculptures and all sorts of things. So when you say fresco, I know that's a yeah. painting, but so when it's archaeological, so the, these were paintings that were hanging on the walls when Pompeii happened? Yeah, so they're not actually like, like hanging like on the walls, on what they are. Yeah. Stone or so on. what a fresco is, is it's a painting painted into wet plaster. So you have the wall of your house, you oh, plaster it, okay. and while it's still wet, you paint directly into the plaster so that it fuses and then it becomes like a part of the wall. And this is something like if you think of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo creation of Adam that's a fresco also so this is an art form that continues um but it makes it very very durable and so when and you know Vesuvius erupts in 79 everything gets buried and then when they start to rediscover it in the mid 18th century what they did was they actually cut them the frescoes out of the wall which is not really something we would do today but they they wanted these works to have in their museum. So they cut them out of the wall. And when you look at pictures of the houses in Pompeii today, you can see like the big gaps where someone cuts something out. Oh, and interesting. It, it so makes in a discovery it, today, they would leave all that there. And if you wanted to see it, you would have, yeah. you would go. The only reason you'd remove location. it today is if like, it was for safety threat concerns. of, right. Yeah. If, if the wall was going to fall down or something. Oh, yeah. interesting. And so they do. So the wall, so Roman homes were like very vividly decorated and the walls were just all painted. And so they somewhat lose their context when you cut them out of the wall because now they become like framed individual works of art instead of like sort a of story one in a motif. Room. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so that's something we've tried to, in the exhibition, 
we've painted all the walls like very brightly colored to try to recreate the sense of how these rooms would have looked because they would have been really bright and very vivid. Oh, that's so cool. So how long is an exhibit like this worked on before it actually opens? I mean, is this a five-year oh, process? A I mean, how do all the works get here? Yeah. When I started at the museum in 2019, this project was already in the works. So it had been going on for a while before I got there. Um, and so this particular exhibition, it's all coming from one museum. And there's um, a company called Mondo Mastri, which has been working as sort of the liaison and helping to organize all of this between Italy and between us. Um, and so this is a project that the curators in Italy spend a lot of time selecting the specific works of art and doing a lot of the research. And then we here at the museum have at our end have been thinking about, well, how do we want to organize this show? What's the story that we really want to tell? Um, which works we want to hang next to each other, writing all our labels, things like that. So it's a, how did they year. pick our museum. What was the, how does that, I mean, That's they could have picked question. any museum. In, that in would North have happened America. before. Yeah. That happened before I started. So I'm not sure how, how does it normally happen? Oh, how, does, how does it? Well, there are these companies like Mondo Mastre and other sort of companies that, um, kind of promote these sort of exhibitions. And we at the museum have relationships with these various companies and we'll say to them, oh, we're really interested in doing like an antiquities exhibition or we're really interested in doing mm. a, this exhibition or that exhibition. And they'll say, oh, well, we know of one coming from blank that maybe would fit your schedule really well. So a lot of times it's just, does the schedules line up? Is it the type oh, of show that we want like to do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like having a concert or something, I yeah, guess. And then, but I wonder if you have to tell the story of the city. I mean, I wonder if they have to sell Oklahoma City because, I mean, you would pick Oklahoma City Museum of Art over the Kimball over the Dallas Museum right. of Art. Like, how do we get them to pick us? Because this is, is the only place it's going yeah, in North we're the, America, right? we're the only venue, which is really That's exciting really for cool. Us. So people will really come from all over the country that are I hope so. interested in seeing these. Yeah. I need to tell my mother-in-law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. You need her to come for the weekend, yep. Amy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, yeah. So how does that, yeah. So do you have to pitch Oklahoma City or does the company that's... Do they do? Yeah. How does that work? I know. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's just sort of a kind of a mutual talking with each it's other. It's like a marriage, like, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And we want to tailor things to our audience. So like if this exhibition was going on display in Italy, you know, if this was on view in Naples, people there might have already been to the actual city of Pompeii. They'd be more familiar with Roman history, oh, things like that. Yeah. But we hear... And, you know, American audiences aren't necessarily going to know the history of Pompeii or know what a Roman house looks like. And so we are really tailoring it to our audience to make sure that we're telling like the fullest story possible. Interesting. So then what is it, what is it like from getting the pieces into the museum, setting up? How long does that take? What's that kind of, is it like weeks? Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of preparing for this for months now. Our design team has been fantastic and they've been building all of these plinths and display cases that the art will sit on. They've been painting the galleries. They've been producing the labels and all of the sort of um, kind of interpretive materials. We've got like timelines and maps and videos and things like that. So we've been working on it for yeah a long time now because there's a lot of little things that you might not think of yeah. But that's all the little steps the that font that you want to use. Exactly. On the wall. Yeah. I mean, or when you're putting the descriptions up, I mean, the, all, the color that I mean, the, it's a, how the a walls are going to be laid out. Right. I can't imagine. Right. And thinking about like, 
you know, normally we format our labels certain way and there's the artist and then the title and things like that. But for these works of art, we don't know the artist. And so how do we want to oh. format the labels? Like, do we want to include this information? Do we want oh, so all of those like gotcha. little decisions that you want to be consistent about all the way through? There's a lot of, I mean, that pieces. would be a crazy project to try to go back and figure out what house it came from. Right. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the research that I was doing is trying to figure out, okay, what house is this from? Because some of them we know, and some of them we didn't know. And, I was doing all this research and there's now a lot of online databases right. that you can look at. But the thing is like, there's a lot of very, very similar paintings. And that's one of the themes of our exhibition is that um, artists would often work from pattern books or copy books. And so we have what at first glance might look like, like duplicates. Like we have two paintings of the three graces and you're like, oh, they're exactly the same. But when you look closer, you're like, oh, actually there's these subtle differences because this artist paints the body this way and this artist paints it this way. And so seeing how these artists sort of, their different styles and their different hands and maybe one slightly better or you like one more, yeah. but that does make researching harder because you're like, well, have I found our three graces or is this a different three graces? Oh, interesting. And Some obviously they, I mean- what were they, wh who was the original artist of the three graces? Let's say, right. where did that piece come? Yeah. And a lot of them what, are what actually would have been painted on. A lot of them were actually based off of Greek art. And so the ancient Romans really revered Greek sculpture and paintings, and they would bring artists from Greece to Italy to work on these projects. They would copy. We today, if you're an artist and you're just copying somebody else, that seems like, well, that's not very original, but copying wasn't viewed sort of negatively back then. It was just like, oh, here's a painting that I really like. I'll just copy that and have that in my house. And so they would copy Greek sculptures and paintings and use those in their homes. And so it wouldn't be weird. Like I might have a painting of Achilles at Skyros in my house. And then I go to my neighbor's house and they have the exact same painting, just slightly different colors or something. Now you don't want your neighbor to have anything you have. I mean, it's, right. it's like interior <laughs> exact design opposite. back in like, it yeah. Is, I mean, I guess it is really how they were doing yeah. interior design in 79. Yeah. CE. C -E, yeah. Okay. in 79 CE. Oh my God. I can't. I can't. Okay. So, okay. If you had to split your time, how much time do you spend working on this particular exhibit? And mm. then you're still doing the pro provenance, provenance research provenance and research. other exhibitions. So right now I would say probably like 80% of my time is Pompeii because we're getting so close to the exhibition or, mm -hmm, opening. Two weeks. Um, yeah. But I also, I have some other upcoming exhibitions that I'm working on and then sort of general research on the collection and when we get new acquisitions, researching those or potential acquisitions, thinking about future exhibitions. Um, I like to spend a lot of time in the galleries. We're constantly sort of rotating the permanent collection. So I had two smaller exhibitions that I curated that just opened in mid-May that sort of tie in with Pompeii. And that was a chance to get a lot of, because we, like most museums, the bulk of our collection at any given time is in the vault. We just have so many works of art. And so we like to constantly be able to rotate those and get new things out and things that people haven't seen. And so that's something we're constantly kind of refreshing the permanent collection galleries. Oh, well, and if you fun. have an exhibit that's coming that really can highlight some of the things that are in the permit collection, that's probably a bonus. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the exhibitions that I just did is classical mythological prints. And so I was thinking like, okay, what stories do we have in Pompeii? And do I have any of those same stories in our prints? And so we've got this prints exhibition that works from the Renaissance to the present and it's Hercules and it's Achilles and it's Theseus, but then it's also some maybe lesser known stories, but a lot of the same stories, which are going to be in Pompeii. So they make a nice dialogue with each other. Fun. 
And Pompeii runs June 26th to November. No, when is Uh, it? October 17th. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a nice long run. People will have lots of time to see it. It'll be open once school starts up in the fall. And so we have some school programming planned. Um, And you have some lectures. We've got some lectures coming. There's going to be four lectures over the course of the summer and into the fall. Oh my gosh. I think like the curation part is so interesting. Yeah. Cause that would be so, it's like. The way you feel about your closet is just right. she you feels put, about it on like a much, on bigger, a much scale. bigger scale. And you put your stamp on it, right? Yeah. I mean, it isn't going to be the same. Even if you have the same works of art going from museum to museum, it's not going to be the same. You could see it at different museums and have it just, you oh, know, the story told a little bit differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the design will be slightly different. Like every, there's a couple exhibitions that I've seen at multiple museums and it's always cool to see that to be like okay how has this museum done yeah. it versus how did that museum do what's it? your favorite museum that's drivable from okc oh that's a good question um it would be like sort of as a big museum i would say either the nelson atkins in kansas city or the kimball in fort worth those are both fantastic but slightly closer to home i really like the maybe gara museum in shawnee that is a fantastic oh. museum. The maybe Garrett Garer Garer Museum yeah. in Shawnee. Yeah, okay. who would have known? Uh, who would have known? It's it's it was a collection. It's on a university campus, and now I can't remember the name of the school. Um, but they have a super diverse collection from like a mummy up to like Native American paintings and Greek pottery and Renaissance paintings, and it's like. Fantastic! Whoa! Was it one family that collected all of these things? That I gave think it was them to the one person the museum. Um, like a so it's a, it's on the campus of a religious school, and it was a, a what is this priest or something? Not OBU, is it? Maybe no. no. Y'all keep talking. Yeah, it will well, so it's it's. I think it was one man who maybe started the collection. Okay, and I'm not sure the complete history of it, but it's it's fantastic. Oh, that's so I highly recommend it. Well, so because. I went to TCU and obviously I think Fort Worth has fantastic museums, very underrated. Yeah. Like, I don't think people realize the amount of art that's just within a little mile radius. Oh, the first time I went to the Kimball, I was like blown away by their Mm -hmm. collection. They have, they have one of the only Michelangelo paintings. I think the only Michelangelo painting in the United States. They have a painting by Mantegna, which is who I did my dissertation on. They have their Caravaggio. Like they have a stellar collection. I I think I've only been there for lunch. I know that's so Oh, the cafe is really good. <laughs> yes, but I, I need to go back and see the collection. It is OBU that's in Shawnee. OBU, okay, that's what right. I thought. Okay, yeah. Well, so I guess first final question. Well, no, hold on. We have another, I have a really quick question yeah, about, yeah. so in when the pandemic started, you guys closed the restaurant at the museum. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. In conjunction with the Pompeii exhibit, you're sort of reopening the restaurant. Yes, which me? is really you know, exciting. food is top priority. <laughs> oh, that's right, okay. I forget. Yeah, we have to talk about <laughs> we have to talk about food. So we've partnered with Patrono and they're going to do a sort of pop-up restaurant called Cafe Pompeii, which will be in our museum cafe space. And that opens at the end of the month, timing with Pompeii. And it's going to be a sort of fast, casual um, sandwiches, Italian food, family food, drinks in the cafe and also on the patio. So we're really And open the hours the museum's yes. open, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, what well, hours are those? Oh, good question. I was gonna say. <laughs> so we have our, our summer hours start at the end of June and it's 10 to 5 open until eight on Fridays and 12 to five on Sunday, right? Closed okay. Mondays. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so you could go for dinner on the weekends. Yeah. On Friday when we're open late. Well, on Fridays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. That's and so what fun. about the rooftop? 
Are we, is, is that more for events? They've the been doing a lot of repair work on the rooftop oh, lately. that's right. Because like we were having a party there. New we had tiles and stuff. I mean, so I'm not sure what the schedule is for when the roof might okay. open up again. So it will reopen and they'll do some at some point. I think so. We don't know. We'll report back when that happens. Yeah. One of my favorite rooftops. Yeah. It is you very can, nice. And since the landscape of Oklahoma City has changed so much. That's so true. That picture that you, that this is Oklahoma posted that then we reposted on Action oh, City. I know. Of the difference from, I think it was 1970 to today. It's crazy. You guys have wow. to go look at this. Okay. On yeah. It's be- the, the city looks beautiful. It really does. Yeah. I mean, just with the green space and, has been added. Yeah. yeah. And just everything looks Yeah. There's so, so many clean. great parks now. Like, I yes. know Sister Tail opened right around the time I moved here. And that's and having a museum downtown. I mean, when the museum opened downtown, was it 2002? 2002. Yeah. 2002. I mean, you had to go downtown to specifically go to the museum. Mm-hmm. You could go to the Civic Center and you sh- could see something and you could go to the museum. Now you can go to the museum and you can walk to, you to Scissor Tail. Yeah. To, you can walk to tons of restaurants. restaurants. You can walk to shopping. Yeah. So, I mean, they really, I don't know if we would could have predicted what downtown was going to be like 20 years later, but you guys are really lucky that you yeah. are where you are. That's what everyone tells me mm-hmm. that like, I wouldn't have recognized the city if I had no. come here 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's changed and I think so too, much. for the museum, it's only a good thing, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like the, oh, the more, wonderful. the more downtown is vibrant. I'm sure the more visitors y'all get. And then the more, you know, the numbers look better. So you can maybe go for bigger. Yes. Yeah. Right. I don't know how I don't. I'm not no, no, I think that makes right. sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. And I think with like the new Oklahoma Contemporary and the First Americans Museum oh, that's yeah. coming, like having yes. all of these more and more cultural mm-hmm. centers is just It's amazing. only better. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Well, so this kind of leads into our first final question, yeah. which is Oklahoma City in 10 years, the museum in 10 years and yourself in 10 years. Kind of where do you see everybody? Oh, OK. Good question. Yeah. It's a um, three parter. <laughs> we got a lot of questions. Yeah. Yes. Get it. I think. I mean, I think the museum is just going to continue to sort of grow and grow and have more fantastic exhibitions. And um, I think as part of that, like with the city as a whole, I really feel like, like we were saying at the beginning that people just don't necessarily know about Oklahoma City yet, but that as more and more people kind of find the city, I feel like it's going to become something like Austin and it's going to grow into like this hip, cool place that like young people want to move to because it's got such a low cost of living and it's got so many great um outdoor venues and museums and the art scene and like beautiful outdoor activities close by. And so I think the city and the museum with it is just going to keep growing and growing. Um, and then for myself, I see myself continuing to work in museums and continuing to travel and yeah, explore new places. I love that. Well, so you want to, what do about, that? okay. So final question. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, so you, since you are sort of new to Oklahoma mm-hmm. city, you said you have had some friends come mm-hmm. to visit and that they're always so pleasantly surprised about yeah. the city. So now that you know the city a little bit better, a friend flies in from your best friend from Skidmore yeah. comes to visit. You pick her up at the airport. You first thing in the morning and you have the whole day to okay. yourself. What do you take her to do in Oklahoma city? Where do you guys go? There's no pandemic. Obviously. Okay. Well, actually there is no pandemic. <laughs> okay. So if I pick her up nice and early, um, I know I take her back to my apartment and then we'd go to La Baguette for breakfast, which is right near my apartment. And we'd have, I haven't been to the downtown one. So good. We'd have a really good breakfast, but then we'd also get like some cake because I like to start cake for breakfast. Yeah. I like that. And then we can go to the botanical gardens and work off our breakfast and walk around. And then we'd go to the museum when it opens at 10. I'd show her all the exhibitions and then 
maybe we'd go up to the collective for lunch in Midtown because oh, I really yeah. like it there. Fun. Um, and what's then, your fav- favorite spot in the collective? Oh, the tacos, the fried. Oh, the Indian tacos. Yeah, that's probably something you didn't have in Albany. The Indian no, taco. no, that's, yeah. a, that's an Oklahoma They're thing. So for sure. good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've taken people there. They love it. <laughs> um, and then maybe we'd get in the car and do like a little driving tour because, like, one thing that I love about OKC is that like there's so many distinct little neighborhoods and they all have such a unique sort of charm to them. And so we'd drive around and do go to the Paseo and Plaza and all the different districts. And then since we're in the car, I take him up to the cowboy because I love the cowboy museum. I think it's fantastic. So I take him to the cowboy museum. Um, and then maybe we'd come back. This is a very full day, but we'll come back. Yeah. And, when I had some friends come visit last summer, we did the like boat tour in the Bricktown Canals. And that was actually a lot of fun. Was so I, it? Yeah. Cause you, you can see like all these like cool art and shops and stuff that you can't really see from the streets. Um, so I do the little boat tour, especially if it's a hot day, a nice way to cool off. Uh, and then we'd have to have dinner somewhere. Um, What's your favorite spot? I really like Bar Kakati, which is right in my neighborhood. Yes. Oh, it was for her birthday. Probably, was it your birthday? Uh-huh. Would take them there. You can walk there? Yeah. So see, I love to be walking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. You have some good restaurants by you. So many good restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Like Grace Water, Black Walnut. Yeah. Lavagette, so, Yeah. That sounds like a really fabulous day. Yes. Yeah. So some I think that would be the perfect day. Go. I, I love that. So where can people kind of find more information about you and the museum and Pompeii and Cafe Pompeii? Yeah. So all of the information is on our website, which is just OKCMOA.com. Um, and you can reserve tickets on there, buy your tickets, learn about upcoming lectures, tours, things like that, information about the cafe, all of that's on the website. And is this an exhibit that you should buy your tickets in advance? I mean, it seems to me this is a pretty big deal. So what do you recommend? Yes, we are still doing timed tickets because Uh, of of the pandemic. Exactly. So it probably would be best if you go on the website in advance. And if you're a member, you can reserve your time slot. And if you're not a member, then you can buy your ticket. Or you can, of course, also call. And we really do recommend that people become members of museum because if you're a member you come to the museum for I mean I say for free yeah and then in special exhibits do you buy a ticket for the special exhibits or are those free as well yeah they're it's still free okay they're so, still free and there's also very special events for members and um there's, and a, there's a beautiful shop at the museum amazing oh, shop my mother loves a museum yeah. shop well, shop ours is, she is never ours she always is buying something so good so it's I so always good. recommend it for people who like they're like, I don't know what to get my father-in-law or I don't know what to get like this family member who has everything. I'm like, go to the museum store. I was like, they have incredible curated stuff. It's not, you don't see it everywhere. And you know, and Richard who runs the shop has gotten some amazing products and connected to Pompeii. So it's a really good. So yes, if you're looking for a birthday present, go down there and become a member and become a member. Yeah. And there's a member. So the exhibition opens to the public on the 26th, but there's actually a members preview day on the 25th. So the members get to see it a day early. Um, and they get various other special perks. Well, great. Okay. Well, Brent, Brent, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. This was so much you fun. You were so yeah. good at this, and I loved hearing your story, thank and especially you. about something I really know nothing about. But wish I knew. But more. wish I knew yeah. more. So I'm so glad I have your number now. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listening to these stories. You can find us on Instagram at Action City OKC. Or for business inquiries, email us at hello at actioncityokc.com. Action City is produced by Black & Studios. 
You can find the studio on Instagram and Facebook at Blackened Studios. Creative services provided by Ranger Creative. Music written and performed by Kansas City Bankroll. <laughs>